either do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. A city set on the hill. When I began to prepare this message, I just went back to this passage and just thought about that phrase. It was amazing to me how just thinking about that phrase, a city set on a hill, just filled me with inspiration. Um, it's, it's a picture of driving through the darkness and then emerging from the darkness into great light. For me, it reminded me of, of, of road trips as a child. See Anna back there. Coming back from Texas from some camp or coming back from Arkansas at Emily's house, driving at night. And for me, the great side was we knew we were home. We're almost home when you can see the new bridge. It was not the new bridge. It was the new bridge in Memphis. And it was shaped like an elm, you know, elm for Memphis. And just seeing those lights and the skyline, uh, you know, reflecting off the Mississippi River. And that wouldn't mean much for you. I know it was just Memphis. But for me, it was home. It was, it was what I knew. It was my neighborhood, my house, uh, my friends, my home, my family. It was the city set on a hill. This imagery of a city set on a hill has inspired people for a long time. Much more than just Memphis. Much more than just what people were inspired by. These are the words of Jesus. But let's think about a few inspirations here in this country over the years through this phrase. On March the 21st, 1630, a Puritan pastor named John Winthrop preached to a group of colonists who were moving from Southampton to, to uh, start the city of Boston. And he preached a famous message this day that was entitled The Model of Christian Charity. As he came to the end, he said, As a city on a hill... The eyes of all people are upon us. This was the inspiration for going and establishing the town of Boston. I don't know if you've got Boston today, been sitting on a hill or not. Fast forward about 300 years. On November the 9th, I'm sorry, January the 9th of 1961, President-elect John F. Kennedy quoted Winthrop pointed this very same thing. He said the same words. As a city on a hill, the eyes of all people are upon us. You move forward about 19 years. On election eve, November the 3rd of 1980, the candidate Ronald Reagan, hoping to inspire people to vote for him and to turn the tide of the country. So on this election eve in 1980, the candidate Ronald Reagan promised that if he would be elected, America would be returned to be a shining city on a hill. Nine years later, in his farewell address, his last address as a two-term president, he spoke of the city on a hill again. Here's what he said. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I've ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. That's how I saw it and see it still. 
Well, we could continue moving on through the years. President Barack Obama, Ted Cruz, Mike Pompeo, the inauguration of Joe Biden. This is a bunch of diverse names. All of these people and many, many more have used this idea of a city set on a hill to set this, this goal of inspiration to build something, to be something that is great, that is worthy of notice. Well, if you use, look at Jesus' words here, you notice something about, a couple of things about this city on a hill. It is less something to strive to be and more something that you are. If you are in Christ, he says, you are the city set on a hill. And so you're called to display what you are. Secondly, it is something that inevitably draws attention and provokes a response. You see this here in the passage. In this same passage, you see a response to the city on the hill. It can't be missed. That's the point. It can't be hidden and it cannot be seen and not responded to. So in this passage, there are two responses. One is, men see this and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. The other response is, men see this and persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Isn't that stunning? The same city. The same scene, the same person, with two dramatically different responses. It is this two-sided response that is intricately connected with our text tonight of love your enemies. This is a difficult passage, and it's an incredibly important and relevant passage for our time. And it can only be understood in the context of understanding this whole sermon. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about the Sermon on the Mount just as a sermon. So it's a sermon on the Mount given by Jesus. What is this Sermon on the Mount? Well, there's a very close link between this Sermon on the Mount and another mountain. This mountain is way back in history. It's called Mount Sinai. And on this mountain, on this day, this is described in Exodus 19 and 20, on this day, a holy God would come to man to relate to man. In other words, God would build a relationship with man, specifically with the men and women and children of the nation of Israel. He would relate to them by means of a covenant. And so in this passage, he comes to make a covenant with them that he might have a special relationship with them. And in this making of the covenant, he gives them the law. And the law is just the terms by which they will enjoy the relationship. So if you know this, it's called the Ten Commandments. And no doubt you're familiar with that. If we were to poll right now, we could come up with all ten. But if all you know is that Exodus 20 has the Ten Commandments, then you miss the whole point. This scene in Exodus 19 and 20 is one of the most dramatic scenes in all the Bible. One of the most dramatic scenes in all of history. So God will meet with Israel 
through his mediator, a man named Moses. And he will give him the law, and Moses will give the law. He will share the message of what the law is, the terms of this relationship with the people. But before God will do this, God will say to the people, he will give them a warning. He would say, listen, before I come, I'm coming down to meet you. And before I come, I want you to spend two full days just washing yourself. Wash your clothes, wash your bodies, sanctify yourself before I come. And then, oh, by the way, when I come, come to the mount, but don't come to the mount. Strange, isn't it? Come to the mount, but don't dare touch the mount. If you touch the mount, you will either be stoned or shot through. But as it turns out, there was never really a need for that warning. Because when God came, here's a description. First of all, there's a trumpet. Well, that sounds nice, a trumpet playing. But it says this trumpet got exceedingly loud. And it got long. So it didn't just play one note or one song. It played and it played and it played and it played and it got louder and louder. And am I, am I annoying yet? It got louder and louder and louder. And then the Lord descends to the mountain in a fire. And the mountain begins to, a real mountain begins to smoke. And the mountain begins to shake. And out of the sky, this thunder starts to crash and this lightning starts to come very near the mountain. And there is no thought of anybody running to the mountain. In fact, here's what it says. It says that the people then removed and stood far off. The word removed can be translated into these three words that you've heard before. One of them is fugitive. One of them is to wander. One of them is to stagger. So just put that all together in your mind. This crowd right here, some of you feel like, I'm a few, I am running as fast as I can to find some place of safety away from my pursuer, this God that's sitting in a fire. Others are just wandering around in awe. Others are staggering in a stupor. They're removing and standing far away. They say, Moses, you can speak to us, but don't let God come speak to us or we will die. And so what's happening here on Mount Sinai is God, as he gives the law, is, is, is shining forth his otherworldly righteousness. God is righteous. God is holy. God is different. He's not common. He's sacred. He's one to be feared, one to be reverenced, one to, if we're going to enjoy this relationship, we had better stand in awe of God. That's Sinai. Now we come to this mountain in Matthew chapter 5. And it seems to be very different, doesn't it? But it's very similar in some ways. At this mountain, God again has come down to man in the form of Jesus Christ. And this time, Jesus goes up into the mountain 
but he brings the people with him. And he sits down and they come very close and they draw near and he begins to patiently teach them and he uses illustrations and examples and he belabors points to make sure that they can clearly see what he's saying. It's a very pastoral, very familiar setting, isn't it? It's not one that immediately causes you to quake and to stagger away, to run as a fugitive from justice. It's one that you say, okay, I can, I can listen. He's, he's quiet. There's no trumpet that's going off forever. He's making these... He's speaking in a, in, in, a, in a calm voice. You see, what's happening here is that the teacher is both the mediator of the new covenant, and he also is the Lord our righteousness. So really, there's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful contrast between the Sermon on the Mount and Mount Sinai, isn't there? But, if you read this closely, or if you listen to any of the messages this morning and tonight, you will see that in some ways, this passage is more alarming than Sinai. Isn't it? Here in Jesus Christ, who's the, full, who's the, who's the brightness of the glory of God, in Jesus Christ, we see the full illumination on what righteousness looks like. Even more full than we saw in, at Sinai with thunder and lightning and quaking and smoke and fire and trumpets and a very clear Ten Commandments. We see even more fully what righteousness looks like. And there's two things that you might note about this righteousness. This, is, this, is a, this sermon is a, is a heart-focused sermon, isn't it? From the very beginning this morning, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those that mourn. Jesus is more interested in, in, a, in a true heart righteousness than he is in some ostentatious display of charity or of, or of prayer or of other things that we would consider to be very, very good and righteous. It's as if he is raising the bar. He's not raising the bar. He's just explaining it better or explaining it more fully to us, isn't he? But the bar sure seems to be raised. We heard the sermon just now. It's not enough not to do the physical, but what's happening on at the heart level. And right in the middle of this raising of the bar, we come across our passage tonight, love your enemies. Which may be the hardest saying in this sermon of all. He's requiring an impossible standard to love, not as man loves, love who loves you, but to love as God loves, to love without discrimination, to love even your enemies, to love the one who just smacked you in the right jaw early in the passage. And that's tough, but it even goes further than that. It's one thing to hit me, 
it's another thing to hit my wife. And so in this, in the, it, 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 we're going to see here in a minute what, what it means by enemies. It's he's saying to love the one who hates the one that is most precious to you. L- love the one who hates the one who you love the most. This is the call. Friends, this is impossible. And yet this is what it means to be a city set on a hill. It's something otherworldly. It's something beyond our natural grasp. Otherwise, we are just one more nameless suburb in a neighborhood full of white houses. What I mean by that is one of my favorite books as a child was Mr. Pine's Purple House. And in Mr. Pine's neighborhood, every single house was built exactly the same. And every single house was painted white. And Mr. Pine struggled to find his house, as you might, if every neighbor looked exactly the same. So Mr. Pine painted his house purple. This is the city set on a hill. It's not natural to love your enemies. In fact, it's not possible to love your enemies on your own. So I want to think through this this phrase, love your enemies, and to try to get everything out of it, we'll just put a a little emphasis change on each word of that phrase, love your enemies. I want to start with the emphasis on the word your. Love your enemies. The Sermon on the Mount is an ethical masterpiece. If everybody in the world would be humble, if everybody in the world would be meek, if everybody in the world would be peacemakers, if nobody hit another person, if nobody stole from another person, if nobody committed adultery, if nobody hated, wouldn't the world be a wonderful place? It sounds like a roadmap to world peace. In fact, that's how many people over the years have looked at this sermon. It's a roadmap to the world. If we can just talk everybody into the obvious common sense benefit that would occur if we would all just adopt this sermon, the world would be a different place. Kind of reminds me of the Beatles song, Imagine. Imagine there's nothing to kill or die for. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no need for greed or hunger. Imagine a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing the world. But this passage is a big letdown, isn't it? Because this passage says that no matter how much you pursue peacemaking, no matter how much you, no matter how humble you live your life, no matter how meek you may be, no matter how much you hunger or thirst after righteousness, world peace will never be achieved. In fact, you will never enjoy a life without enemies. The same Jesus who said, blessed are the peacemakers, in this sermon, says, love your enemies. Meaning that you will have enemies. I can't emphasize that enough. It's very difficult for some of us to accept. 
if you are in Christ, you will have enemies. It's not just that they are enemies, but they are your enemies. In fact, the implication of Matthew 5, 10 and 11, and the passage in Luke, the corresponding passage in Luke 6, is that being united to Christ guarantees not only that you will have enemies, but they will not be dormant. But they will actively hate and pursue your harm. Listen to what he says in Luke 6, 22. He defines their actions. They hate. That's a, just a disdain of the heart. I don't like you. But it goes further. They separate you from their company. You're ostracized. They reproach. That's the, that's the, that's the, that's the, the, the ugly word to your face. And then they speak evil. They tell others about it. They slander you. Now, it's important to note that this is not describing, when it says love your enemies, this is not describing the awkward friendships that we have even here probably. Where, you know, you get your feelings hurt because somebody didn't talk to you today or didn't sit by you um, or maybe said something about you to somebody else. Now, these principles still apply. But this is something different. Who are these enemies? Why is it true? Why do they say you will have enemies? Why is this? And the answer is very simple. While they are your enemies, it's all about Jesus. If you are in Christ, you will have enemies because of Jesus. This is what the passage says, Matthew 5, verse 11. Verse, verse, uh, yeah, verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. Why? For my sake. It's about Jesus. Well, that sounds strange. Jesus is meek. Jesus is humble. Jesus is good. Jesus healed. What is it about Jesus that creates enemies? What is it about Jesus that creates enemies? Well, let me give you two things from really from this passage. Number one, the problem with Jesus and those who become his enemies is that Jesus speaks with authority. Our passage in Matthew 5 that says, love your enemies, it starts with, ye have heard. That's the sixth time that phrase was uttered in this Matthew 5. Ye have heard, and it's always followed by this. Ye have heard, but I say. And it's that, but I say. That is the big hang up. Jesus speaks with authority. I say. If the Sermon on the Mount had ended in chapter 5, verse 2, with Jesus just coming down to man and sitting with man, he'd be no problem, would there? It's, it's like Al Mohler said recently. Everybody desires a helping hand. Everybody loves the idea of Jesus as one to come help me. Come take care of my sins. Come heal me. Come feed me. Everybody loves that idea of Jesus. Everybody desires a helping hand, but they hate being told what to do. Is that not true? Is that not at the heart of every one of us by nature? Our greatest insult as we grow to adulthood, as we grow to being 15 years old, is to be told what to do. And it's this authority of Jesus 
that turns people off, turns people away. Secondly, he speaks and he is righteous. This sermon is a righteousness sermon, isn't it? He's showing us righteousness and in, and in teaching or illuminating righteousness, he is at the same time exposing darkness. He lives righteousness. He exudes righteousness. He illuminates righteousness. He speaks righteousness. And all it does is just show how dark our heart is. And that is a problem. So that Paul would describe the enemies that Jesus is describing here this way in Philippians 3. Paul would say, these enemies are the enemies of the cross of Christ. What? Why would anybody be an enemy of the cross? Is it the cross that Jesus stands and takes the penalty for what we deserve, right? But the cross is a problem because the cross says this. The cross says that God wasn't teasing about sin. The cross says there is righteousness and there is sin and there is judgment and it's not a joke. And sin and guilt of sin is an offense to those who love sin. They will there be no consequence with it. So the cross becomes their enemy. They're enemies of the cross because Because their God is their belly. All that means is, my God is whatever I want in the moment. My God is to fulfill all my desires. And anyone or anything or any authority that stands in my way of doing what I want and getting what I want is my enemy. Because I have a different God. My God is my belly. My glory is in what Jesus says should be our shame. Jesus says, you should be ashamed of this. And you go, wait a minute, that's what I love. That's what I glory in. Who mind earthly things. So maybe tonight I'm speaking to both those of you who are in Christ and to those of you who realize you are the enemy of the cross of Christ. Because you love your belly. And you resent any other authority, any other God. You resent Jesus in this way. Let me just tell you, your problem is not with rules. Your problem is not with oppressive people. But your problem is with a holy God who nailed Jesus to the cross for sin. He poured out his wrath on his own son because his own son was bearing as guilty for sin. And my only call to you is to repent and to fall upon Jesus Christ. But tonight, if you are hated, it's because you have a different view of Jesus. In contrast to Philippians 3, if you are in Christ, the words of Matthew 6 
when Jesus is praying and he says in this model prayer, this example of prayer, he says, as opposed to the name of Jesus being the enemy, he says, hallowed be thy name. Is that how you feel? Do you love the name of Jesus? Do you love the name of God? Instead of my kingdom being everything, thy kingdom come. Instead of get out of my way, it's thy will be done. Instead of excusing or lauding or, uh, or flaunting sin, it is seeking forgiveness for sin. Like later in Matthew 6, it's seeking his kingdom first over all other desires and concerns. And friends, whenever you have these two types of individuals, there is an inevitable clash. And so I must tell you, I must tell you tonight that one of the most important things that you can do is to accept the reality, if you're in Christ, accept the reality that you will have enemies. Otherwise, you will always be trying to comfortably live right in the middle of a war zone. You can't do that. You cannot live comfortably right in the middle of a war zone. There's a war between righteousness and darkness. Second emphasis, enemies? Love enemies? You see, there are two kinds of people probably tonight here. The first I just described, you're very uncomfortable with the idea of having enemies. The second people say, enemies? Where's my gun? You love conflict. You love to tout the fact that you know Jesus. And you're ready and armed to do war wherever, whenever, however. And the details aren't that important to you. Well, this comes and slaps us in the face, doesn't it? Love your enemies. You see, this passage begins with, Ye have heard that it hath been said. This was the teaching. The teaching was, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, but hate your enemies. Hate thy enemies. And the question is, well, where did they hear that? Because if you go back to the law in Leviticus 19, all it says is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It doesn't explicitly say anything about enemies, except for in the context it's all about those who mistreat you and how you to love. But they conveniently ignored that and says, it says, thou shalt love thy neighbor, so we're free to decide how we should treat our enemies. In fact, the Pharisees went a step further. Well, before I say that, let me say this. The Jews understood that when, Jesus, or that when the law said, thou shalt love thy neighbor, here's what it meant. It meant their own people. It meant those who were close to them. And for the Pharisees, even among their own people, only the loyal, only the righteous, and only those who, who passed their test of righteousness. And everybody else was fair game, for shunning, and worse. In fact, the Pharisees went even further. They believed that Leviticus 19, verse 18, not only implied, but even enjoined, in other words, even compelled them to hate their enemies. You go, wow, that's, pretty, that's, that's a stretch. Well, let me say it this way. If they hate God, they thought, we should hate them. Does that sound like anything you've ever thought? If they hate God, we should hate them. Well, this is not just theoretical in the day that we live, is it? 
there are all kinds of scenarios and real questions that people are beginning to have to face in the public sphere. How do I deal with injustice? How do I deal with personal loss because of stands that I might need to take on the cause of Christ? How do I deal with evil policies? Let me just give you one small story. This is very mild, yet it causes me to question this whole idea of loving your enemies. I have a friend back home, a member of our church. His name is Daniel. Daniel has been blind from the very first day he was born. He's in his 50s now. He's never seen the light of day. Imagine that. Imagine living all your life, never having seen one face, one rainbow, one color, one ray of light. Everything is the same all the time for Daniel. What an existence. His hope is in Jesus. His hope is in the resurrection. His hope is in 1 Corinthians 15, that one day this mortal shall put on immortality. One day this body that is natural will be replaced with a body that is spiritual. One day his eyes, like Job, shall see for himself the Lord Jesus Christ. And not another. That's his hope. Well, recently he was at a family gathering and he has, uh, one of his sisters is agnostic and, the other is, and another is atheist and uh, some, of the other ones, some of the other ones are Christians. And so one of the, uh, the, the atheist child, about five years old, was in the room and was talking to Daniel and as any child would do, you see a guy with his eyes that look weird and he was questioning about his eyes and his sight and he said, he said so what, what's wrong with your eyes? And Daniel said, well, I can't see out of my eyes. He goes, but one day I'm going to see again. And the boy said, well, what do you mean? Are they going to cut your head off and, 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 and put a new head with new eyes? And he said, no, 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 God's going to give me new eyes. In fact, God's going to give me a new body in the resurrection. And his sister jumps in and says, how dare you fill that, that boy's mind with those kind of things? And Daniel shared that with me, and I wanted to go find his sister and poke her eyes out. Friends, that is, that is one really mild story of dealing with an enemy, isn't it? There are more opportunities. I'm not advertising this, but spend about two seconds on Twitter, on libs of TikTok, that page. And you're astounded to the vitriol and the hatred that is gaining steam against the name of Jesus and the ways of Jesus and the people of Jesus. And he's telling us to love them. Love them? Can you see the great conundrum? Why a city on a hill is not a common thing? You go hug that sister. I don't want to. Well, the last, the last point. Love. Love. This is the call of Jesus. Love your enemies. How? Maybe love means something different than what it seems he's calling us to. Let me give you this definition of love from James Montgomery Boyce in describing this passage. This love is one that loves without variableness, even when maybe you're losing your job. It loves even when the object of the love is hateful or unlovely. 
you might say that it is love for no reason at all. Or love when there are ample reasons to discourage it. It is godlike love. The point is, such love is to characterize our love, our lives as God's children. Hear that again. You might say that it is love for no reason at all, or love when there are ample reasons to discourage it. I read that quickly, but wrestle with that idea in your heart. When there are many reasons to discourage you loving someone, he says, love. Well, the question is how? How do we do this, God? Jesus, you've commanded this. We love you, Jesus. We don't find it in our, in our nature. We don't find it in our, even in our desires to love those who hate you, to love those who may mistreat us, to love those who stand against righteousness, to love those who are wrecking our nation with all kinds of evil and evil policies. Now, I mentioned earlier this afternoon when we say love, we're not talking about loving the things that they love. We're not talking about going, going the same way. We're talking about speaking truth in the midst of a difficult environment. But we're talking about interpersonal, act, interpersonal, interpersonal relationships and opportunities. When as David had Saul in his grasp, instead of plunging the sword into his chest, he lets him live another day. We're talking about kindness and doing good and blessing and praying for. How do we do this? Let me give you four thoughts. And all four thoughts start with the word look. The first one is look back from the very beginning of this message. Look back at the setting of this sermon. We said it before. Let me say it again. At this scene, God is sitting down with man. God has come to man. And there is no quaking, there is no fear, there is no running. There is no reason to run. But God and man are sitting down at this scene in peace and in harmony. Man is the, is the student, God, the, his disciple. Jesus is the teacher and you should ask the question, how did that come to be? How did it come to be that Exodus 19, the same God, Jesus is barely God. How did it be that Exodus 19 can happen and they can't come close and Matthew 5 can happen and they can sit down together and learn? Look at this setting. And in this setting, Jesus says these words about his father. This is in Luke 6 count he says my father he is kind unto the unthankful and the evil he is kind unto the un unto, unto the unthankful and to the evil that's how god and man can sit down in matthew chapter 5 here's another quote from jesus in this sermon on the mount like our passage, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. You put those two thoughts together. God is kind to the unthankful. God is kind to the evil. You are the 
children of your Father which is in heaven, it should tell you something has happened, something's changed. And the question is what? Well, you know what? Here's the next look. Look away from the words that are being spoken to the lips of the one who's speaking the words. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus is this teacher. Jesus is the one who's shining the light. Jesus is the the full righteousness. But friends, Jesus is also the love of God in person. Jesus is the love of God. The cross is the measure of God's love. How do you love? You love because God has loved in this way. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the express image of this person. Jesus is also the love of God poured out as a sacrifice to bring us to God. This is the message of Romans 5. Romans 5 says these three things. It says, number one, while we were sinners. What that really means is while we were hideous to God. You can't be any more odious to God than to be a sinner. To be one who rejects Him and rebels against Him and transgresses purposely His laws. So while you are as hideous to God as you could be, or to say, Christ died. Not you died, Christ died. Then it says, while we were without strength. What that means is, when it was impossible to get ourselves out of our condition. Impossible. Not unlikely, not a really difficult battle, but when it was impossible to fix your condition, Christ died. Not you, Christ died. And finally it says, while we were enemies. When we were enemies. It's the same place, isn't it? When we were enemies, Christ died for us. And the chapter goes on to tell us, He died for us to make us righteous. Through the death of one, many would be made righteous. Thirdly, look at how Jesus doesn't just command us to love, Look at how Jesus fulfilled every one of these calls he gives to us. Listen to this. In this passage, he will tell us to bless them that curse you. Can I remind you how Jesus washed Judas' feet? Can Can I remind you how Jesus prayed for Peter and restored Peter who would curse him once, twice, three times? In this passage, it says to do good to them that hate you. Think about Jesus as he is being unjustly taken away, stoops down to fix the ear of the very one who will do him such harm. It's astounding, friends. Pray for them, Jesus says. Think about the cross. Father, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. Then it says that God sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You wonder, why does God do that? Well, Scripture tells us that God is willing to show His wrath. God's ready right now to show His wrath. But because of God's great love for the vessels of glory, God withholds His wrath. He continues to reign on the just and the unjust that He might show, He might lavish, He might pour out the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy. That's you if you're in Christ. Finally, look in the mirror. So look at the setting. Look at the one, Jesus. Look at His example. And finally, look in the mirror. And if you're in Christ tonight, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see a child of God. One who was a rebel, but one who through the love of God, God brought you to Himself. Jesus lives in you. He lives in you to make you look like Him. This is the passage, that ye may be the children of your Father. It just means that you may begin to resemble who you are. That you may look more and more and more like your Father. Isn't that amazing? You are the enemy. You were without strength. You were the sinner. And now it says you're the child of God. To others, he's a city on a hill that says, let him be, put him away, let him be crucified. To you, you with the centurion say, no, truly, this is the son of God. Why? Because of God's great love for you, lavished out upon you in Jesus Christ. And so, friends, it's in the power of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are then empowered to love our enemies. I, I fully believe that in July of 2022, this is a more relevant message for you if you'll be faithful than probably ever before in your and my life. And so, well, how do we do that? What do we do? Well, I don't have the answers to all of that, but let me just close by sharing two quick stories. The first one is about a man named Stephen. Stephen was feeling the full brunt of the hatred of the enemies of the cross of Christ against his own physical body. He was being stoned to death. He only had a few more seconds left in his natural life. And you know what he did? He used that last few seconds being unjustly, savagely, savagely, cruelly executed. He used his last few seconds to say, Lord, Lay not this sin to their charge. That's a city on a hill, friends. That's otherworldly. And do you know who was the recipient of the, bless, of the answer of that prayer? 
the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, it says, or somebody, it tells us he was standing there. He was standing there as an enemy, as a hater of God. And Stephen, in his last moments, blessed, did good to Saul of Tarsus in a way that Saul could never repay him once he became Paul. That's amazing, isn't it? The last story. Scarlett interviewed a couple for her podcast. They had a difficult, difficult marriage. The husband left the wife to regularly to drink and carouse. The wife was a believer and she prayed and she prayed and she prayed, Lord, change this man. And she said, the Lord told her, well, first I'm going to change you. And she said, wait a minute, this is not right, Lord. I'm not the one in need of change. He's the one in need of change. And God told her, he said, I want you to start praying for him while he's out. And so she started praying for him the whole time. So he'd go into her closet and pray for him the whole time he was out drinking every night. And then she said, God told me that's not enough. I want you to have a warm meal ready for him when he gets back in. So she started doing that. That's otherworldly, friends. He didn't change immediately. But God changed him. God turned his heart. That's the whole goal of this. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, who's kind to the unthankful, the evil. And so we, in our small way, are called to stand strong for truth through righteousness. And even as we are standing strong for truth and righteousness, we, on the other hand, are bearing cups of cold water in the name of the Lord. We're doing good, we're blessing, we're praying for, we're turning the other cheek. That's impossible unless Christ lives in you. And if Christ lives in you, and the power of the gospel is your greatest motivator, you are the city set on a hill. It's better than the lights of Memphis. It's better than Boston. It's better than Reagan's presidency. It's better than Kennedy's presidency. It's better than America. It's better than every other one. It's, friends, it's, 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 it's the work of God in the hearts and lives of people to produce in them what they would never, ever, ever, ever think of doing on their own. And God uses it for his glory. What does it say in Matthew 5? That they may see your good works. Paul and Stephen, this husband from his wife, they may see your good works. And the day of visitation, glorify your Father who is in heaven. May God bless you.